We're reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, you want to find that in your Bible. And we're going to make significant progress this morning. We're going to finish verse 1. Don't tell anyone. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's hear the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The letter to the Ephesians, we have noted so far, is both personal and official. It's personal in that it's from Paul, and we took some time just to look at the character, personality, background, and career of Paul in our first study, and official. We looked at this last week. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's this blend of intimacy from Paul and authority coming to us in an apostolic way. This word apostle can have a more general sense of a messenger, somebody sent to do a job, But in the way it's used in the New Testament, it has a particular, specific significance, as we saw. It derives from the Hebrew, which which means to send, and it's used in the Old Testament prophets. The prophets were sent by God. God sends his prophets to Israel, for example. Now, this title is not a title that Paul has taken to himself. He is an ambassador of Christ. Christ has sent him, as it were, with his orders uh, to do something. He's not self-appointed. God has chosen him, and he represents Christ as an apostle because it is God's will. That's a summary of the first line of the chapter. He serves as an apostle, the bearer of the word of Jesus Christ, so that we hear Paul and we hear Jesus in Paul's words by the will of God. Now, in keeping with the formal structure of correspondence in those days, Paul then moves to identify who his readers are, those to whom he is writing. All the textual tradition have a superscription, which is common to them all. Now, a superscription is what we have here in the ESV at the top there, where it says the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. The superscription in, in the tradition simply says to Ephesians, to Ephesians. Some manuscripts, not very many, one or two, have the word Ephesus in the second line as we have it here, to the saints who are in Ephesus at this point. One manuscript has to the saints who are in Laodicea, a nearby town. Three of the earlier manuscripts have a blank where Ephesus is. And Basil the Great in the mid-fourth century was able to say that the name Ephesus was absent from all the old copies known to him. And he probably had all there were to have. 
This indicates that this is probably meant to be a circular letter. Even if when you read the book, you'll find that there are dissimilarities with Paul's other letters. He doesn't mention any names except one associate called Tychicus. He doesn't send greetings to particular people or families or or individuals. He thanks not one of his readers. In all of his letters, he's always thanking people for this, that. And the other thing, he's greeting so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. And we wonder who they are because we don't know who they are. But Paul did, and he greets them in his letters, and they're in our Bible. He doesn't mention any of his travel plans. He had a habit of telling the churches what he was going to do next. Uh, He doesn't say anything about his travel plans in this letter. So the indications all are that this letter is a general letter sent to people in Asia Minor as a circular letter for the, the churches, the house churches in that region, beginning with Ephesus, which was the first major city you'd come to if you went to Asia Minor as a postman to deliver the message of Paul to the church there. It was the main metropolis the provincial capital, their transcripts could be made and then sent out to the churches, the other churches. So let's imagine ourselves then seated beside our first century brothers and sisters, ready to hear what the apostle, therefore what Jesus has to say to the church. And the very first thing that comes to our attention as we listen is the way in which the apostle describes his hearers. If we had access to the manuscript, which we wouldn't have because it would be in the hands of the the, the leader, the bishop, the the senior pastor or whatever, but if you could have had a skim through what's to come, we would find that in this letter there's going to be high doctrine for us to get our minds around. Uh, The epistle, this epistle, marks the highest point in the Apostle Paul's literary output. He addresses it to ordinary people like ourselves. He is addressing it to every Christian in every church, wherever this letter is read. Samuel Taylor Coleridge called this letter the divinest composition of man. It wasn't written for theologians, though. It was written for all of us. And it raises right at the very beginning a very important thing for us to address, especially in our day and generation. And it's this. Who and what are these people? And since we're listening to the letter being read to us as Paul intended this morning, who or what are we? Who or what are we? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls what Paul gives as an answer the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. And as he goes on in this letter, he will teach us things that will take us deeper down and further into the deep things of God. That's his ultimate objective. But first of all, we have to grasp for ourselves what the apostle sees in us. God's people gathered and worship like this. At its most basic level, 
So who and what we are. Before we talk about the institution of the church, before we talk about the high doctrine that's contained in this letter, we must ask this question. For our own sakes now, and for the sakes of our children and grandchildren, who and what is a Christian? And the apostle answers our question by giving us three distinctive descriptors. So let's look at them together very quickly this morning. First of all, Christians are saints. Christians are saints. Maybe you're a non-Christian person and you're here this morning and you're questioning that right away. Let me explain as we go on. It may even come as a surprise to those of us who are Christians to read this this morning when we think of ourselves, our wives, our husbands, or even your minister. Saints? Not likely. We are no saints. So, no saint. Well, first of all, then, we must give attention to the background of this term. Paul is a great scholar, we saw, of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the word saint takes its meaning from the way God chooses his people out of all the peoples of the earth to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Because of this calling, Israel should be holy because God is holy. And God teaches the people what this holiness means. For example, the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple, the tabernacle, the place where they worship, is to be a holy place. Not just everybody can get in, and even within the, tabo- uh, uh, the tabernacle and later the temple, there is a place that is screened off by a great curtain be- beyond which no priest except the high priest can go. He's teaching the people that this holy place has been set apart for him, for his use, for his worship, for his glory. Even the furnishings of the tabernacle and the temple were to be placed in a certain way. They were not to be moved, shifted around. You can redecorate the, uh, the, uh, the tabernacle or the temple to suit your predilections or to suit the, the, the times in which you live. The, the, these things were put in place in a certain order because they taught God's word to God's people simply by observing the order in which they were made. The furnishings, the, the worshippers, their approach to God, the services, what they did as they worshipped God. All of these things were exclusive to the people of God, had to be done the way God prescribed, and were therefore holy, holy. The Christian church, then, is a community that is set apart Put to one side, as it were, God puts a a ring around his church and said, These, saith he, are mine. And these people are called to gather as God's holy people. That is, those who belong to him. They are to gather in worship of his name. When viewed from a human perspective, God's people look like anybody else. They have to shave or not shave, depending on whether you've got anything to shave or not. 
They have to eat their breakfast. They have to shower from time to time. They, they have to go out to work. They have to raise their children. They have to make meals. And all of these things that we do in our ordinary lives, the people of God look the same as everybody else. But viewed from God's perspective, they belong to him. We have demographic commonalities with other men and women, but we have been set apart by God for God. That means that we belong to him. And we belong to one another because we're part of this society, this community of those who have been set aside by God for God. And we've been given a unique place in God's purposes. Not because of anything superior about us or about the church, but because of God's purpose and gift. We are God's own people. We are His flock. We are the sheep of His pasture. We are a peculiar people. God's choice of words, not mine. We are a people for God's possession. The church as a body and the Christian as an individual has been selected and separated unto, for, toward God. Both Israel and now the church have received the word of God, which Paul calls the oracles of God. And those oracles tell us that we are called to be in the world, that is, taking our place in the normal course of events and affairs with other people in the world, working alongside people, working for the common good, taking care of society, getting involved in whatever God has placed us within this earthly realm in the world but not of the world. The apostle expands this in his letter to the Galatians. Listen to what he says to the Galatians. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God our Father. Now sometimes we're tempted to bristle at this. We, we don't like the idea of being different or being odd. Now, some of us are odd. We just are, and some of us admit it. But we would still be odd even if we were not Christians, because that's the way we are, okay? Paul is not talking here about pursuing oddness, however, He's talking about what we objectively are, called out, called together, separated from the world for God, for God. So there's an objective sense. We're all saints. But there's a subjective sense to this. And that is that those who are saints are to pursue saintliness or holiness. And holiness has to do with cleansing at its roots, something that's signified by our baptism and something that's affected by the Word of God, <clears throat> the Word of God preached to us, described by the apostle as the washing of the water by the Word. The Word of God scrubs us and cleans us inside and out. The word preached, in other words, is not simply an intellectual exercise. 
it actually does something. It does something radical, something that goes beyond, beyond our consciousness, something we're unaware of, but it does something to our nature and our character. That's why the littlest children can be brought to church and can benefit from the Word of God even though they are too young or mature enough to process what they hear. It affects them. It changes them. It predisposes them to the things of God. It's used by the Holy Spirit to sow the seed of regeneration in their minds and hearts. I I mean, I was brought to church... I was born at a very early age, and and from that very early age, I I was being brought to church. And I learned to love being in church. I loved looking at, as I grew up and was more conscious, of course, and I wasn't just being carried around by my mom. I can't actually remember that bit. But, you know, once I'm sitting in church with my kilt on, uh, the only one to wear it, feeling rather odd, uh, and sitting on wooden seats that did not have nice, comfortable bits that you've got to sit on in here. Uh, And that's cold, by the way, when you've got a kilt on. Uh, Just too much information there. But, But I remember growing up in that environment that the I loved the church. I loved what what I learned in church. The hymns became important to me. This is before I'm five, for heaven's sake. You have no idea how much an impact the Word of God has, even on those who are mentally not able to take it in. There is nobody that cannot be affected by the Word of God because the Word of God is the Word of God. God is in the breathing of it. God is in the, is in the essence of it. He uses it as a, as a way into your heart, into your entire character. The Word of God is powerful to cleanse, to renew. And we need cleansed. We need cleansed from the guilt of sin. Right at the very beginning, that's the thing that has to be dealt with. This is what keeps us out of God's presence, the guilt of sin. But the saint is someone where the guilt is removed because they've been brought to Christ, first of all, and they put their faith in Jesus, and and now they're brought into the presence of God, and their guilt has been pardoned. And then there's the pollution of sin. Sin that pollutes the mind and the heart and the reason and the actions of a person. A baptized Christian is both washed inwardly and outwardly. Is made to be like Mount Zion, a holy place, or the vessels in the temple, holy vessels, or a holy people, as was called, uh, Israel was called. All God's people are saints by God's designation. And we spend our lives pursuing holiness in our thoughts and our actions and our words. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but for holiness. Every believer is a saint. Now here's a question. All Christians are saints. But what about the honorary use of the word saint? 
Up until the 1960s, every Protestant version of the Bible would have read the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians, or the Gospel of St. Matthew, or the Gospel of St. Luke. Protestant ministers would have referred to St. Augustine and St. Athanasius. They would have referred to St. Michael, whose celebratory day was last week. Uh, St. Michael being an archangel with Gabriel. And and, uh, that day is celebrated just to recognize and to thank God for all of the angels of God and their billions that God has made. Each angel is special creation. No angel is part of any genus or, or uh, that, that has others attached to him. They're individually made by God in order to serve him and to serve us, his people. And we call him St. Michael. We call some of the great teachers of the church, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, and so on. What are we doing when we do that? Are we permitted to do that? Yes, we are. We're permitted to do that because every Christian is a saint, number one. We're recognizing only their particular contribution to Christian thought, Christian truth, or Christian living. We'd rather give them a Christian title than any other kind of formal exterior worldly title. Saint is a good one to use. And we use the word saint as a way of identifying them with us, and us with them. Here's something we share with these saints who have gone before us. We can't remember every believer who's ever lived, but we can remember these individuals who kind of stand out for some reason in the history of the church. We can remember their names as a way of remembering all the saints, all the saints of God, including all the saints that are here in this room today. God has made us holy to himself. So a Christian is a saint. Secondly, a Christian is faithful. Faithful. That word faithful is sometimes used in, by Paul uh, in contrast to faithless. Like Jesus, when he says to Thomas, be not faithless, but faithful or believing. The Christians Paul refers to are people who believe. That's the basis of our Christian faith, isn't it? We believe. Famous words of Romans 10 verse 9 come to mind. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is God or Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you become a Christian. It's the best verse in the Bible to tell you how to become a Christian. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. To be faithful is to continue on in that faith. It is to persevere in that faith. And it's vital for us to believe certain things. The kind of things that are summed up in the Apostles' Creed. We believe about God the Father, Jesus Christ, His Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by extension, the church. These are the things, Paul says, that are most surely believed among us. We hold on to these things. To be faithful involves believing and remaining, remaining true to our confession of faith. 
Our faith is often tested. We're tempted to jettison aspects of it when we're challenged by the world. And so when Paul is talking to a, a young man, Timothy, who's about to be appointed, appointed as a minister of the gospel, he says to him, the things you have heard of me commit to faithful men. In this sense, it refers to those who are constant, those who have a faith that is unfeigned. That is, it's not put on, it's not a mask we wear, but it's for real. The same as what the writer of the Hebrews means when he talks about a true heart, a true heart. So it's one thing for us to believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, which he is, in the virgin birth of Jesus, of Mary, which he was, that Christ died for the ungodly, which he did, that he now rose from the dead and is ascended to heaven where he is now and will come again to judge the world. It's one thing to believe those things. It's another thing to be found faithful in the sense that Lydia meant when she said, if you have judged me faithful. At the end of the day, we want to be counted faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now we have to put these first two descriptors together and you can see the vital marks of a Christian. The churches are intended to be churches of the saints. Thomas Goodwin is a great uh, Puritan writer and he warns against making our churches so, uh, more and more acceptable by receiving people who simply believe in Christ while leaving the idea of holiness out. He reminds us that the church is one holy apostolic and Catholic church. Holy is, is a mark of the church. It's necessary. Goodwin is surprised but uh, encouraged and quotes Cardinal Bellarmine, who gets this point very clearly. Bellarmine wrote, The church in her intention gathers only true believers. And if she knew, if she knew who were wicked and unbelievers, either she would have never admitted them, or having been by chance admitted, would then exclude them. Would then exclude them. In other words, Bellamine is recognizing the a reformed point of view that the church has to buckle down on holiness as a mark of the church and as a mark of the Christian. Faith and holiness go together. The work of faith, a holy life. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, or Thessalonians rather, God has chosen us to salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. Faith and holiness are joined together. Both make, are made, are necessary. One leads to the other, is confirmed by the other, is the effect of the other. Chrysostom I'd like to take this letter and read it. And, and he sees, 
he draws our attention, if you read Ephesians, who are these saints? Who are these faithful people? You read the rest of the book, here's what you find out. They're just husbands and wives and children and domestics. They're just ordinary people. They're not super people, super men, super women, super children, or whatever. In fact, Chrysostom goes on to say, people, he's distinguishing between, the, in those days, the religious, that is, those who took the vows and were ordained into various uh, degrees of religious life. Everybody else in the church was called the secular. And he's talking about everybody else in church when he says this, even secular people are called saints and faithful in the scripture. All of us. And the faithful are to pursue holiness to pursue holiness. Third mark of a Christian in Christ Jesus. A Christian, we said, is both a saint in Christ Jesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And when he, when he uses this expression, he doesn't mean us to read it faithful in the sense of believing in Christ Jesus. That, that's taken for granted. It's expounded later on in this letter. Here it's being in Christ Jesus, being, existing in Christ Jesus. The saints and the faithful and the churches they belong to are all in Christ. Just as the listeners to this lesson lived physically in their respective towns in Asia Minor, just as you and I exist in the various suburbs and other communities relating to Philadelphia, so spiritually, we are in Christ who is our life. In Christ who is our life. The Christian belongs to an ecclesial community which is in Christ. The, the whole church is in Christ. That means under the sphere of his influence, or as one writer puts it, we're in his energy field. Everything he is, is here with us as individuals. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's here with us by the the Spirit, and we are with him in Christ because we're part of the body of Christ. So he sees the church, you see, and this is going to be important later on in the book. The church to Paul shares a deep mystical identity between the community and the people in it and the risen Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, mediated by the Holy Spirit. The church is God's house in which he dwells, God's temple in which he is worshipped. Each metaphor expresses both the unity of the church and her people and the multiplicity of the church spread throughout the world. And the profound sense of God's presence within the community. This phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's signature phrases. It refers to the relationship of union with Christ, which results from our having been incorporated into him. 
It's put like this in Colossians chapter 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've, been, you've come to fullness of life in him. Your life is hid with Christ in God, Colossians 3. The Christian receives and shares in the life of Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Of his fullness have all of us received, and grace for grace. To be in Christ denotes a vital spiritual connection with Christ. This is not a mechanical connection like fish and water, birds in the air, plants on the earth, us breathing in the oxygen on this planet. Our connection with Christ advances, embraces rather, Christ being in us and us being in Christ crucified, risen, and glorified. This is a holy, mystical, spiritual fellowship and communion, a living connection with Christ, moment by moment, day by day. You're under his eye, you're before his face, you're living in him, you're, you're alive in him, he is alive in you. You are never without him, he is never without you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you, Jesus says. To you as an individual, to us as a church, he will never leave us or forsake us. Because I am in Christ, I belong to him. We should not let ourselves be overcome by our weakness and our helplessness, by our fears or failures, by our aches or pains, by our trials and temptations. We shouldn't allow the the pressure of the culture to make us question our identity as believers. Maybe you're struggling with a sense of your own identity. I urge you, I urge you to think about this. Go away and think about this and pray about this very matter. Find your identity in being in Christ. In Christ. Let that make be the thing that gives you a sense of ease of purpose, of your own being. There is nothing greater, nothing more wonderful, nothing that will last for eternity than this being in Christ. And in the spiritual desert that our society now is, the church should be an an oasis of greenery and life-giving water. We Christians should be known for that. We shouldn't be known for being approachable. We should be known for being alert to the question, why, why do you do this? Why are you a Christian? And so on. And be ready to give an answer. These three descriptors then tell us who a Christian is. And we can work on them. We can work on them. We are saints by God's act of taking us and placing us in Christ. Then we need to pursue holiness. We, this, this pursuit of holiness is not a theoretical or purely intellectual pursuit. But it begins with the prayer, purify my mind, purify the thoughts of my heart. You're justified by faith. But you're justified in order that you may be sanctified. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
William Temple put it like this. No one is a believer who is not holy, and no one is holy who is not a believer. What God has joined together, let no one pull asunder. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to your table, as we come to eat and drink with you in your presence, with our brothers and sisters, our family in Christ, Lord, we pray that we might find ourselves reflecting on who we are. What a wonderful thing. Who we are. Saints, faithful, and supremely those who are in Christ. And because we're in him, you receive us the way you receive him. And you will bless us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Draw near to us as we prepare our hearts now for this service of the supper. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.